So I, I dived in, I was ready, I knew I could go and do it. And I knew it was going to be close because down that last length, it was hard work. I could feel the fatigue coming on, but you know, that just like fighting for it. And I touched the wall, I looked up at the big screen that tells you your time, and I was devastated. After all that hard work, I couldn't be consoled. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ung. The Olympics may have just finished by the time this podcast episode is published, and while we've been ooing and eyeing and cheering all the amazing accomplishments, have you ever wondered what life holds for professional sports people after they've left the sporting limelight? My guest today is Rachel Boardman, who didn't quite get to the Olympics, but spent a few years representing the UK as a national swimmer. She'll tell you that transitioning from full-time sport hasn't been the easiest journey, but pushing through has given her a new identity that serves the world of marketing yourself. Rachel now coaches entrepreneurs on transforming their business through powerful storytelling. And she also has her own top 50 podcast in the UK, the S word. Rachel, welcome. Hi, I'm so excited. Um, literally, you just had to drag me away from watching the Olympics. Um, so <laughs> whenever this spot on TV, I just want to sit and watch it. So um, yeah, let's get into this. I'm so sorry. I'm sure you'll have a replay button to catch all the limelight moments. I uh, should explain fine. that as we're recording <laughs> this, we're sort of towards the pointy end of the Olympics. But by the time this gets out in podcast land, the uh, Olympics will be over, but the Paralympics will be coming up in a couple of weeks. But, you know, I believe you might be my first interview from the UK. I, I don't know why it's taken this long, but since we're just sort of in Olympic season, I'm calling this a new record on this podcast, you know, so well Woo! done to us. I'm awarding us virtual medals, round of applause. But Rachel, the world of competition isn't new to you. It was first sports, now it's business, which is competitive by nature. Were you always competitive? Yes, is the simple answer. I grew up in a family full of competitive people. So in my family, on my mum's side, there's five cousins. So there's me and my brother, and then I have two male cousins and a female cousin. My female cousin, not so much into sport, but I was a swimmer. My cousin, Tom, who is... 10 days younger than me we look like twins when we were little it's quite funny um, he played football or soccer as you might know it and he played football to Wanderers he was in the academy team he played for England under I, I, like the youth system um, his older brother played rugby my brother played rug we're talking rugby league by the way because um, we're in the north of England and um, played rugby league um, and my brother also played American football while I was at uni so we were always like doing sport and we're always just trying to best each other and it's just like that compet we just I don't know if it's like a natural thing but whether it was sport or whether it was um at because I was also in scouts when I was born my parents were cub scout leaders um I don't know what you call it in Australia is it joeys I think you call it joeys yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah so um they were the cub scout leaders so I went through the scout system and in my group I was like the only girl pretty much 
But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to prove that I was just as good as the boys. I ended up being like the youngest patrol leader in the group. And they have a competition throughout the week where you get points for doing different things. And I was like, right, we're going to win. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it, the, the, the short answer is, yeah, I've always been competitive, whether that's a natural thing or a nurture thing because of the environment I grew up in, I don't know. But um, yeah. Is there a one memory where something happened and you thought, gee, I'm really competitive when you knew it was you and not necessarily the environment. I'm not sure. I don't, probably like when I don't, when I have to win an argument (laughs) with my brother. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I have to like have the last word, I have to beat him, even though he's like a foot taller than me and built like a a rugby player. The thing is, it's not always, what wasn't always, I had to beat the next person person and it was never really about winning it was an, it was about not losing and it was about me improving because like as soon as I got into swimming at our club within the club system every month we did like a competition against other people in the swimming club same age and it was called point score and basically the idea was depending on what stage you're in depending on what events you swam and you swam that event they recorded your time and then the next month you'd swim it again and you'd see if you'd improved. And all of a sudden it was like, huh, I'm not racing the other people. I'm racing myself and the clock to see if I've improved. So as much as it's about that competition against other people, there was also that really strong competition against myself. And then that was seen in like my academic stuff. I was like, A-level, which in the UK is the two years that you have before you go to university. I was predicted to get an A and two Bs, I think, or two A's and a B, something like that. And I ended up coming out with three Bs and I was absolutely devastated that I got these three Bs. Like I know now that that's, you know, that's really good. I did biology, psychology and chemistry. Those are pretty hard subjects. Um, yeah. But I was devastated because I knew that I hadn't done the, what I could do. Like, it was what it was. And then that gave me the motivation for when I went to university. I was like, I'm going to come out with the highest grade that you can get, which is a first. So for me, it's always been that internal kind of competition almost. And I think it's probably still there. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for a couple of years, you were in this pressure cooker kind of environment where you can describe it better than I can, but you were given benchmarks always to do better. And you had people that you were competing against to do better and to benchmark yourself against. So you were in a very specific environment that only athletes can relate to. And then at one point you decided to retire. I mean, what was that? decision like and what was that transition like for you so my decision to stop swimming was well I'll kind of take you back to the beginning so when I was 11 12 13 I went to the national championships the first couple of years I didn't perform really well it was like getting used to the system but just before I turned 15 I had pneumonia and I was out the pool for a month I narrowly missed being hospitalized with it and when I went to the hospital they kind of gave me the option at that point they were like you can either stay in and we can treat you in the home or you can go home I was like that was the day that I don't know if you remember but way back when they did the live eight um concerts 
And I was like, if I'm in hospital, then I will not be able to watch it. So I want to go home, please. Um, so I just went home and I lay on the sofa. I had the fan on because I was really hot because obviously that's what happens when you have pneumonia, you have a high temperature. And that's one of the things besides coughing your head off. And I just like plunk myself in front of the TV and watch that all day. But that situation as anyone knows that's had any kind of like pneumonia or anything like that it scars your lungs anyone that's had pneumonia with covid you'll know that it scars your lungs and it's something that saps your energy i lost a lot of weight at one point my mum thought that maybe i'd end up with like chronic fatigue syndrome because i was just tired all of the time and it actually took me three years from being diagnosed to doing a personal best time in the pool again and in that time I watched all of my teammates like go past me in training those that swam my stroke that were younger than me I saw them catch me up and then I saw my friends going you know represent GB youth system going go for England schools and you know get picked to, to go and do things win medals at British champs and you know all the stuff that I wanted to go and do And I had to sit there and watch them do it and just try and focus on getting back to where I was and making those slow gains. It it was so hard work, but like up here, I I knew that I could get back because I'd watched somebody else do it. I'd seen other people do it. There was my original coach, her son, he had got a virus or something. He almost died and he came back from that. And a few years later, he went to the Athens Olympics and competed at the Olympics. So I was like, I know he did it, so I can do it. So I always had that kind of belief that if someone else would do it, why not me? Um, that third season where I um, did my personal best, I was absolutely flying. It was like nothing could touch me. Everything was going right. I was training really well. I was going hitting. We had this set where we'd have to swim like five lots of 200 metres. And the target time was to get between like 10 to 12 seconds slower than your personal best time. I was hitting six to eight. So at that point, I was like, I know I'm due a PB. <laughs> um, so I, and that was a point where the competition after that, I went and did the time. And I took like three seconds off my time. And at that point, I was like half a second away from my national time, qualifying for national championships that year. So I went, did some more hard training, came back, and I had this one last competition that I was going to do. And at that point, I watched. It was funny because I had two of my teammates who were in like the – age categories below me so one was in the one directly below me and then one was in the one after that they were in the two heats swims before me so I watched them swim and I watched them both go and get their qualifying time for national championship so I was like right it's on I can do this as well we're gonna make it three in a row Um, (laughs) so I I dived in I did it I was ready I knew I could go and do it and I knew it was going to be close because down that last length I was just it was hard work I could feel the fatigue coming on but you know that just like fighting for it and I touched the wall I looked up at the big screen that, that tells you your time and I was devastated I'd missed the qualifying time by 0.06 seconds six one hundredths of a second it's like it's literally like a fingertip it's ridiculous and I was just like after all that hard work to get back to where, where I was I was just I couldn't believe it and I I couldn't be consoled. I went normally like at that point, you climb out the pool, I go and talk to my coach and I go swim down. I went straight to the swim down pool, ignored absolutely everybody 
and just swam down and kind of the, the best thing about being in the in that swim down pool is when you're like you're crying in the water nobody can tell that you're crying because obviously like you're in the water and tears you know and that kind of thing and you've got your face in and i couldn't be consoled but the thing was after that the way that a lot of athletes work is you have that disappointment and then the next thing is like okay but where's the next goal we're gonna get to and that's kind of how i was i didn't process what had happened and how i was feeling i didn't i didn't know i needed to i didn't have that kind of big backroom support like with all the sports psychologists and all that so i didn't know i needed to do that you know i was only what 16 17 what 16 17 year old would know they needed to work through that really unless they had someone telling them so the season after that i spent like training to get fit and then i would get ill because i'm i'm asthmatic and because of the pneumonia whenever i have like a cold or whatever it goes straight to my chest and i have a chest infection and after time i'd have time out of the pool and then get fit again and it was just like this circle and i got to the point where i was just like i can't do this anymore and I felt like swimming had betrayed me. I had like this big messy breakup with it. And I just didn't want to have anything to do with sport or exercise for that matter. The only thing that I kept up was I was still teaching swimming. So I was still teaching little kids, but I was just like, I need to be out the pool. But like I said, I didn't process any of that stuff and I kept it with me. And I just kind of was like, okay, now on to the next thing, which was university. And yeah, I didn't realize until a few years later when I hit rock bottom with depression and I ran away from university because I didn't think people would believe me. I ran home to safety that it all stemmed from the pneumonia and the season where I didn't process stuff and that kind of ended my career. And it wasn't until I had that space and time to realize that that was what was happened that I was able to process it and able to understand. And and that was one of the reasons why I started my original podcast, Beyond the Finish Line, which talked about the transition from athlete to entrepreneur, because that was what I was doing at the time. And realized that everybody that I talked to in in the athlete world, whether they were just a high school athlete, whether they were college, whether they were an Olympic medalist, a Paralympic medalist, like whatever it was, all had a similar like mental health journey when they left sport because you lose your identity because most people who get into sport start when they're a kid right they lose that identity mm. you build that identity everyone knows that you're this athlete whatever sport it is and all of a sudden you're not doing it anymore but people are still asking you you know you're still doing that and you almost feel i felt guilty almost ashamed that I wasn't doing it anymore. Like I'd let people down almost, even though they were just like being friendly and inquisitive. Um, But here's the interesting thing. The thing that got me out of that depression and helped me, besides obviously the podcast was really, really therapeutic for me. Like just understanding people, everyone has the same kind of things and talking through my stuff as well, was I got back into exercise. It wasn't until I stopped doing exercise that I realized how bigger a thing it is for me like keeping me sane um so yeah that's kind of my journey wow rachel what a story i mean here we are we're supposed to be talking about business storytelling and i think i can see why you're naturally drawn to storytelling and that's because you know so much of your life already so far has been a huge journey and there's been so much 
to process. That story is so rich and it can take people to places where they need to be at. So, I mean, much of the world has been going through this difficult transition since COVID hit. And it's, I guess, you know, I'm sort of seeing parallels with people trying to make their own transitions and yours was from sport into entrepreneurship, which was a totally different ballgame for you. Yeah. Was that challenging to do? I mean, to take up a whole new skill set and just create this new identity for yourself? It definitely was, but I think I didn't do it all at once. Like I never, like it was never something that I ever considered. I always thought like being an entrepreneur, being like a business person, owning your own business was something that other people did. I kind of thought you had to be like this special type of person to go and do it. And it wasn't really until I started seeing, um, I saw a couple of posts on social media of like a couple of my friends that started their own swim school. So they were running their own business. And I was like, huh, I know these people. They're not that special. It's it, Maybe anyone can do it. But like the real thing for me was like, I never really knew what I wanted to do. Especially after all the mental health stuff, I just knew I needed to be happy. And I'd spent eight years at university, got myself a PhD in preclinical oncology, but I knew I didn't want to do that. I was like, this isn't for me. I need to go and do something else. And the only thing that really excited me at that moment was to go and travel the world. And at that point in time, when I decided I was going to do that, it was like towards the end of 2017. And I was like, hmm. The Commonwealth Games are in the Gold Coast in Australia, Easter in 2018. Maybe I'll start there. So <laughs> I started researching, figured out that for those under 30, there's a like a, a working holiday visa that you can go and do. And I was like, that's for me. So I booked my flight to the Gold Coast um, to start when the Commonwealth Games were starting. I went and watched some of the sport there and then like did the whole backpacking thing around Australia for a couple of years, which was awesome. I got to work at a dairy farm for four months. I got to meet people that I'd never meet. I got to work in a pub in the middle of nowhere. I got to swim with whale sharks. It was awesome. But around that, I did it on my own. And it was the first time that I'd had that space to really kind of process things, to figure out what I wanted, who I was. Because at that point, I, you know, I still don't really know who I was. And I had that space. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that can relate to that because of what happened with the whole furlough thing with COVID and, you know, having all that time to sit around and go, huh, what do I really want to do in my life? But I feel lucky I had that like before (laughs) COVID. And I understand that not everybody is able to have that Mm. time. And I feel very grateful for it. But at that point, during that kind of journey, I was like, I want to travel forever. I found out that there's this thing called the digital nomad with people who work on their laptops with Wi-Fi from anywhere in the world. And I was like, I want a bit of that. So that's kind of how it started. I started with the whole blogging thing and did a bit of freelance writing. It was never anything like big or anything, but that's kind of how I dipped my toe into it. And then from there, like I'm sure... A lot of other people, you think, okay, that was good. And then you try this next thing. So like the next thing was really the podcast. And then through the podcast, I met Jamie, our mutual friend, and he invited me to coach in there. And he was like, okay, I'm a pretty good coach. Oh, at least that's what he keeps telling me anyway. (laughs) You are an amazing coach. (laughs) And then my visa finished in Australia. So I came back home to the UK and I landed in the UK five weeks before we went to lockdown, the first lockdown for COVID. 
at that point, I pretty much didn't have a job because I just got back from traveling. I wasn't really making any money online that was going to support me or anything. So I was back home with parents to have a job. There was no chance of me picking up like a part-time work to support me because we're in lockdown. Nothing was open. And I was, I think I had two, about £200 left in my overdraft. I was just like, how the hell am I going to pay this off and support me and find money? All I had was this podcast and some random freelance work. And my friend introduced me to funnel building. I learned how to do that and then went and worked in her agency, which was really eye-opening because as I was building other people's stuff, I was like, huh, the funnels that work the best are the ones that tell the best stories. And as I was delving into that marketing world, I was hearing people say, oh, you need to tell your story, you need to tell your story. But nobody was telling people how to tell their stories or like particularly what stories actually do for you. They were just saying you need to tell them. And I kept hearing people say, I know I need to tell stories, but I'm rubbish. I'm not a very good storyteller. I don't have any stories worth telling. And I was sat there going, yeah, you do. Yeah, you are. And I started like testing stuff out and putting things out there. And then, you know, people started telling me that, you know, you're pretty good at telling stories. How do you do that? And like, that's kind of how it all happened. And the rest is history, as they all say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, actually, how do you do that? Some people are natural storytellers. Just give them a bit of a platform, just give them two minutes and they'll take it. (laughs) But there are, you know, a lot of other people as well who just freeze when, Mm. you know, they're given a bit of a spotlight or a bit of time to share something. And we're talking in the context of the world of digital marketing where, you know, most businesses being conducted nowadays, events included. So... How do you, like, if someone comes to you and says, I don't see stories anywhere that I can draw from, my life is pretty bland, a company's story is pretty straightforward, and, you know, how do, how do I start this process? How, how do you begin with that? Yeah, so the thing that I want to say to everyone that's listening is that as a species, we're built on storytelling. So we've been telling stories. You will have been telling stories from like pretty much the day that you started communicating with people. You are a better storyteller than you think you are. And most of the time it's about having that structure to focus your storytelling because a lot of people will go off on tangents or, you know, get lost as they're telling the story. It'll start off really, really good and they get lost in the middle. And that was definitely me for a long time. And I think the key, whenever I'm helping someone craft a story, I'm crafting myself. There's two W's that I start with. The first one is who are you telling the story to? If you don't know who you're telling the story to, then you're not going to be able to pick a story that's relevant or a story that they'll be able to relate to. Just because not not everyone's going to relate to all of the stories that you have. So you have to pick one that they are going to relate to. And then you're more likely to get the result that you want, which leads me on to the next W, which is why the hell are you telling the story? If you don't know why you're telling the story, then you're going to get lost in that middle. You lose that focus and you end up what a lot of people do is in the, the event sequence, they'll include every single event that they think is important. And while every single event is important, not all of it is relevant to why you're telling the story. And that's how your stories become elongated and they get lost and they go off on tangents. And you'll hear people say one of my most hated phrases, which is to cut a long story short. Because most people, when they say <laughs> when they say to cut a long story short, they actually carry on with a long story. They've just like brought tried to bring themselves back from a tangent. <laughs> 
Um, so if you if you find yourself saying that phrase, you've probably gone off on a tangent and you, you like need to focus. Um, but I have this story structure. I call it the Goldilocks storytelling framework because it allows you to create a a story that is just right for the person, for the occasion, whether that's a short, really short story, like maybe you do in an Instagram reel and you only have 30 seconds, or maybe you're doing a talk on stage and you need like one that's an hour. But the structure allows you to squash and stretch out your story. And basically it starts with, well, obviously it starts with your who and your why. And then we can go into your hook of hooking those people into the story. And then you do that with curiosity. Generally, our brains naturally need to, if you give somebody a little bit of information, but not all of it, our brains are like, I need to know the rest of it. Close the loop. Yeah, to, cl- yeah, to close the loop. And that's the best way to hook somebody in. And then once you've hooked them in, we go to the background. So like, who were you? What was going on before this whole journey and drama started? And the thing to remember with the background is it doesn't have to be very long. It could be just a few sentences. The background is just to kind of give people a little bit of background to like give them a reference point of what was the point before, what was happening before, so that they can understand the journey better. The real meat and bones of your journey is in the next bit. At that point, you have your trigger point. So there's always a point in a story that sets off the journey of transformation. And I like to... My favorite like example of this is in the movie Shrek. The trigger point in that movie is where he comes out where all the fairy tale creatures are dumped into his swamp. And he's like, why are you all here? And they're like, well, little Farquaad sent us here. So the trigger point is to get rid of all these people, he needs to go on this journey to go and see Lord Farquaad. The next point of this, I call it the escalation point. And this is because in every situation it usually gets worse before it gets better maybe the stakes are raised in business it could be you lost all of your clients you don't have enough money to pay your rent next month you got fired um you know something happened that made you have to go all in and the intensity is intensified and that's probably not a good way to put it makes perfect sense though (laughs) so yeah so that's like your escalation point and then that pushes the story on a little bit. Eventually you'll find the solution to the problem that happened with the trigger point. So like Shrek rescues the princess, right? That was the solution. Um, obviously it doesn't end up like that because I'm sure we've all seen Shrek by now, hopefully. Um, <laughs> if you haven't, where have you been living under the rock? Living in a, living in a swamp? <laughs> um, but yeah, so you have that solution and then At the end of the story is where you get to have a call to action. Sometimes it can be a subtle call to action. It doesn't have to be go buy my thing right now. It could be connect with me. If it's a social media post, it could be engage or, you know, like or leave a comment or, you know what I mean? It could be go check out this thing. But if your audience don't know what you want them to do, then how can you expect them to go and do it? Like people aren't mind readers and they kind of need a little bit of hand-holding. And then the the key thing to remember, which is where a lot of people fall down with their storytelling, they can get the events in the right sequence, but they forget the key thing, which is to tell people what's going on in your head. Because while the events are your like external parts of the storytelling a story is actually about the internal transformation so it's going from who you were to who you are now and it's the external events 
facilitate the internal transformation. So if you don't tell people each part of the story, what you were thinking, how you were feeling, what you wanted to do, what were you trying to do, like what was going on in your head at that moment, then people can't understand what they're like. I don't know why you're telling this story. It makes no sense. Whereas if you tell people how you were feeling, what you were thinking, what you were trying to do, it allows your audience to go, that's me right now. Or I understand that because I've felt a similar kind of way. Maybe I've not been in the exact same situation, but they can understand how you're feeling. And then they can see that you've made that transformation. You found this solution that helped you get to where you are to now. And they go, huh, I'm where you were and I want to get to where you are now. I know you can help me. Please, can you help me? That's why stories are so powerful. So good, Rachel. I mean, you've just shared your secret formula framework, um, and I love that it's called Goldilocks. But I'm guessing that in order to do this really well, it does take some practice. It does take developing that muscle to storytell, which is why, you know, people would need a coach, a storytelling coach like yourself. And I was going to ask, you know, whether business storytelling was a science or an art, but it sounds like it's a little bit of, of both. Is that yeah, something you agree with? I think there's definitely a science structure to it. And there's been a bunch of science. People have studied like how stories affect people biologically. There was a study that they did where they showed two groups a video. One had a story in it and one didn't. It had the same two people in it. And the people who watched the one that had a storyline, they measured their blood before and after they watched these videos. And the people that watched the one with the storyline had 47% more oxytocin, which is your trust and empathy hormone in their blood than the ones that didn't. Um, so yeah, they had that like science, wow. which blows. I mean, I have a science background, so I get geek, geek out of this kind of stuff. But it's so true. Like you can <laughs> have all the pieces to tell a good story and still not connect on a deeper level. And it is about once you've crafted that story, it's almost a beginning. You then have to go out and and practice because it's not until you share that story that you can go okay that bit really resonated with the audience I'm going to keep that bit that bit not so much so I'm going to tweak it and test and try it out it's like anything in the marketing world we have to test things out and it's almost like a big experiment and depending on how you're telling your story because you can tell your story by writing it down through posts you can tell it audibly on stage or through podcasts or whatever and then you can tell it visually whether that's might be a comic book it might be some kind of um interpretive dance Um, (laughs) well it is if you go to any ballet they're telling a story um true so there is the art form of you've got the bits and pieces and maybe that's the science bit but how you put it across can be the factor in how well it'll perform yeah and a lot of that's to do with like the intricacies and I'm not going to lie, I'm still learning that side of performing the story. I feel like I've got the way to get it across when it's written because you can format it, you can use bold, you can use big text, small text, italics and all that, and that helps get across your personality when you're telling that story written, which is fun. And a lot of it's to do with being yourself, but some of it's to do with watching the way other people speak and tell their stories and just you know knowing when to pause because that was a big thing with me. Sometimes I have almost have a, like verbal diarrhea and I forget to pause. And so <laughs> and I had a friend tell me, Rachel, you need to pause a little bit more and, you know, create that 
dramatic tension or if it's something's really exciting then you need to speak in a way that gets that excitement like speak faster speak louder if something's um not so much for example when i you know i chat about my mental health my depression you'll see that i talk more softly a little bit quieter just because it's a more serious subject that kind of thing and it's yes it's an art but it's not hard to learn and a lot of it for me anyway i get from (laughs) watching other people and it's that model what works i learned that when i was a swim teacher when i first started i'd go around and i'd cover other people's lessons which was great because i got to see i look around and see what other people were doing and pick things up and go that's good i'm going to use that in my next lesson and you can do the same thing with storytelling like some of my stories are not my own well that's one thing that I, i love to tell people the stories you tell don't always have to be your own you can borrow other people's stories as long as you give them credit because no one likes to plagiarize her. <laughs> as long as you say, this is this person's story or, you know, this I heard this from this person, then it's fine. But if their story illustrates the point, gets the point across that you want to get across, then why not use it? Yeah. And I think there are two kinds of stories. There are big overarching stories like the main story of your life or the main story of a company. I mean, the one I can think of is Apple and Steve Jobs. That's a really strong company story. But then there are all these micro stories that you've talked about, you know, things that we have to post on social media. And I think for a lot of people, you know, that sometimes can be the more challenging one because you have to post uh, frequently and you have to find new sources of stories. What is your process for coming up with good stories all the time? I mean, I know myself, I might think of a nice story that might work, but that'll happen in the shower when I can't write any notes. So is there a system or an approach that you need to go in with in order to make this work? I think the first thing is find out what works for you um, because everyone's different. For me, I have, I mean, I think I actually have several places where I write down. I have like, um, I use the app Notion. That's where I keep my story vault of all those stories that I tell repeatedly. Because like the thing is, you have to remember that as the person who's telling the story, you are the only person that will hear 100% of all of your stories. So it's okay to repeat the same stories over and over again, especially if they're the ones that have the impact, um, the ones that people resonate with. I mean, if you look at Russell Brunson, how many times have you heard his potato gun story? Like he tells it every time he gets on stage. The other thing, like even if someone's heard your story before, the next time they hear it, they'll get something else out of it. It's almost like a good film. If you ever watched a film and then you go back and watch it again and you go, oh, I missed that bit. I didn't realise that that was in there. And you see something else. So you get something else from out of that film. It's same with the stories. Each time you hear the story, someone will be a little bit further along on their journey. So they'll pick something else out of it. So it's okay to repeat those stories. But I, my best piece of advice is we all carry around, generally have a phone in our pockets or in our bags, depending on how big your pockets are. Yeah. And most phones have an inbuilt notes app or you can download one that's your preference. And just if something happens during the day, just take a few notes. The best notes to take are what happened, how did you feel? And then if you know the lesson right there, then add that in as well. But sometimes it takes a while to think about that lesson and just having that catalogue of things that happen, some of them might not ever come to fruition as a story to tell but some of them might 
and just getting into that practice of maybe at the end of the day you sit down and go okay what happened today can I make a story out of that and it's just having that that practice but once you told that story whether it's in a post whether it's on a clubhouse group or a podcast or whatever take note of whether it resonates with people whether they engage whether they like it or not and if they do use it again I'm not saying use it again the very next day I mean like a couple of weeks or something (laughs) yes I think the only story that you could probably get away with telling every single day is your origin story because you're talking to new people and they're asking you who you are what you're about but in general like you can repeat the stories, but I'm not saying have five stories and then put one out on a Monday, one out on a Tuesday, one out every single week because that's not going to work. But you can rotate those stories. And then once you found the ones that work, you don't have to go out there and find as many. But my favorite place to find new stories is in the mundane, everyday things that happen because it happens to everybody. Everybody can relate to them no matter what. For example, I did a an email a couple of months ago about spilling milk. And that's something that happens to a lot of people at some point in their life, right? From that story, I related it to a principle or something that I talked about in my business. And then I asked people to click a link and like people took action. It's about finding something that happened in your life that day, but you don't have to tell it that day. When I first started doing this, I got caught up in the, okay, what happened yesterday so I can tell a story today? And while sometimes that is possible, sometimes it's not. You might have a really busy day where like three or four stories pop up and you've got them down. You can tell one of those stories a few weeks later and just say, this thing happened to me recently. I love the word recently because if you <laughs> if you listen to any comedian on stage and they'll tell a story and they'll go, blah, 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 recently. And they'll then go and they'll tell his story. It turns into a joke. These comedians have been like touring their tour for like a couple of years and they're still telling the same joke story and saying it happened recently. So how long ago exactly was recent, recently? What's your definition um, of recent? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the same is true. Like something could have happened a couple of weeks ago and all you have to say it was like, it happened recently. People don't really care. All you want to do is tell them a story that either changes the belief, entertains them, solves a problem, gives them some kind of teaching point and then relates it back to something that you do in your business, show them how you can help them and then tell them how they can start working with you or click a link or like whatever it is you want to do. So good, Rachel. Have you been to any events that have used storytelling effectively i mean one of the things we love about the travel trade industry is that every destination has a story but how would you use a story at an event can you interweave story into an event this well i mean the short answer is is yes when back when i was doing my phd i went to a conference and there was some kind of a story in that you had your keynote speaker and then the way that the speakers were set up followed a story. And I know I haven't been to Funnel Hacking Live before, but I know that Russell Brunson, he sets his live event up the same way. So he has a story arc for the whole event in terms of like what he wants people to learn, how he wants to do things. And I think him as a speaker, he speaks each day and he has like this story arc, but then he picks certain people the speakers to come up and speak at certain times at certain days to fill in the story so if he wants people to learn about 
a particular part of marketing if that's the theme of the event. Then he picks the speakers that will fit the story arc of that. So like the people that talk about this particular thing, say to be able to put a video together, you need to know X, Y, and Z. So on the first day, he's going to have people that talk about X. On the second day, he's going to have people talk about Y. And then the last day, he'll have talk to people talk about Z. So that by the end of time, they've got all the pieces of that story of how to create a video. That's just an example. I don't know if that's actually a thing. So it's the way that you design the overall event. Obviously, the speakers that you have come on and do the event, they all tell their individual stories. So I think the best way to describe it is almost like, if you look at like a sitcom, The Big Bang Theory, for example, in a season of The Big Bang Theory, there's an overarching story, a line of what happens, but each individual episode has its own individual story that adds to the overarching storyline. Yeah. And that's kind of the way that I know that Russell runs his Funnel Hacking Live. And that, I think that's the best way that you can bring story into an event is look at it as like a big umbrella of a series and then your individual episodes. I love that. I think rather than the traditional way of just picking a number of topics that you've decided are relevant to the audience, which is good. We all need those things. But if you wanted to incorporate story. And I think it makes it a more impactful experience all around and it gives people an extra reason to remember that event and they'll come away talking about it as you are talking and telling me about it right now of how you have an overall journey that you're taking your attendees from day one to day three or day five, whatever it is, and people can start connecting the dots and follow a particular journey. And that makes a whole event more exciting as well. I love that idea. Thank you so much, Rachel. We began our chat talking about your professional swimming career. So I'm just wondering what is the biggest lesson sport has given you for business? I love that. That was one of my favorite questions to ask on my old podcast. <laughs> Um, and no, honestly, it was that that was one I of the promise questions that I was I, not spying. <laughs> it was one of the questions I used to ask towards the end of those podcasts. And I love the answers because there was different ones, but there was a few kind of the same. And I think for me, it was that kind of resilience of like, if something doesn't work, you can get back up and go again. Because like, I had three years where I, I didn't do a best time, where swimming didn't really work for me, but I just got back up and carried on and I knew that, that eventually the thing would come. And I think it's that kind of grit and resilience and that I'm not saying people that haven't been in sport don't have it, but I think we have it in abundance, um, that failure is okay because it happens all the time in sport. Like for me, like you don't get a best time, you don't get in the final, don't get on the podium. Where if it's a team sport, you don't win your game, you know, you don't score, like whatever it is. No one can be at the top of the game on their own, but it's always by making those mistakes that we learn. Like when I first started doing tumble turns in swimming, and that's the thing where you, you see them do like a roly poly in the pool and push off. Um, Very impressive. I couldn't, yeah, I, I couldn't do them. And I'd sit there and I'd watch the big swimmers and I'd be like, watch them, how they do it. And they make it look so easy. If anyone's watched the Olympics, they'll, they'll make it look so easy. And then I learned how to do the roly-poly. Sometimes I wouldn't do it properly and I'd come off at the side. Sometimes I'd, I'd do it too far away from the wall. So when I turned over, my feet wouldn't hit the wall so I couldn't push off. But 
every single time that I practiced, I got a little bit better and I learned what not to do until the point that I could do it every single time. And it's the same in business. Sometimes like I know like I've made the mistake. We all want that quick fix. How do we make all that money right now? And while I fully, fully, like fully believe that getting a coach is the way to go to help make it quicker. I mean, look at any Olympian that's at the top. They've got a coach for a reason, but you still have to make those mistakes yourself. Like a coach can only help you go so far. The only way we learn is from making mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel, is there a favorite book or resource on storytelling for business? There are a few. At the moment, I'm reading a book called Wired for Story. Um, It's not necessarily about story for business. It's about story as a whole. And I've also, there's a, I can't remember who it's by, but there's a really cool book called The Science of Storytelling, which is where I got some of my, my science stories from. Again, it's not specifically for business, but there's a lot of stuff in there that will help you craft stories that are really, really, really good. But for business-wise, there's Brand Story, which is always a good read. Um, so yeah, you've got three books there. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll put those in the show notes. Also, how do people connect with you if they wanted to? Yeah, so my DMs are always open. So I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram more. My handle is at Rach Boardman and I host a regular room on Clubhouse at 2 p.m. UK time, which might be a bit late for you guys in Australia, <laughs> um, about horror storytelling. But yeah, I'm on Clubhouse um, quite a lot. But yeah, just, you know, shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, we'll have a chat. Rachel, it's been a real joy to have this conversation with you. I mean, we know each other, but I never knew that story that you told right at the start of our conversation about the journey that sport has brought you through, really. Um, it's truly inspiring, and I can't wait to see what you do with this storytelling business. So <laughs> that's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It's been fun. And hey, thanks for listening. If you think Rachel's story will inspire someone else, please share this episode. There's a link in the show notes that will work on any device. And by the way, partly inspired by Rachel, I've just started an email list where I'll share some behind the scenes of some of the interviews you hear on this podcast and maybe a few oops, I spilt milk kind of stories as well. If you want to be on that list, let me know. Hit me up on uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this show if you like it. That would mean heaps. And join me again next week to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future.